You know who makes truly delicious cold brew? Grady's. Grady's New Orleans-style coffee is roasted, blended, and brewed in New York City. I like the concentrate. Just add water or milk and ice, and you're cooking with gas. But Grady's also sells cold brew bean bags, so you can whip some up on your own. Go to Grady'sColdBrew.com and use the promo code LATEERA20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Trust me, it's just delicious. This is where the shadows come to play Twixt the day Welcome back to the latest episode of the only podcast that glitters like sunshine on the surface of a lake on a breezy afternoon. This is Late Era, where we're talking to you about strange, overlooked, wonderful, late career albums by classic musicians, such as Kate Bush whose excellent album from 2005, Ariel, is the subject of our episode today. My name is Andy Cush. I'm the bass player in Garcia Peoples. I am a contributing editor at Pitchfork. And these days, I'm mostly a bartender. I'm Winston Cook-Wilson. I play music uh, in office culture and as Winston CW and as The Dark Shed. I'm going to add that one in. Hey, what's up, listeners? I'm Sam Sadomsky. I'm uh, an associate editor at Pitchfork. I make music. Uh, lately, I'm just a guy trying to set up his new apartment and doing whatever it takes to make this place work for me and for my partner. Uh, uh, and Wrap it up, wrap it up. Uh, that's all. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, folks. When did you move, Sam? I moved on Friday. Wow, congrats. Yeah, thanks. Looking a little barren and back there. I'm not gonna. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. You could have done yes. a little more work in, in the podcast room before the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if this is gonna always be the podcast room, but for now, I'm just in my new bedroom, and I'm just really happy to be settling in to talk about Kate Bush with you guys um, on Friday, like in the heat of moving stuff and unpacking and all the stress. I put on my CD copy of this and just pretty much immediately I was like, ah, like soothed. Um, it was, uh, so I'm grateful for the music, grateful for the friendship, grateful for podcasting in general. Um, I'm happy to be here. We're incredibly thrilled to have Jude Rogers with us today. She is a very accomplished, longtime UK music journalist and broadcaster. Um, currently, she writes extensively for The Guardian and broadcasts on the BBC. Uh, she has followed the career of Kate Bush um, since she was a kid and uh, has written about her extensively. Currently, her newest radio series, A Life in Music, which talks about how we experience music through childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Uh, that program has a section about Kate Bush that everyone should check out. So uh, 
Stick around for clips from my one-on-one interview with Jude throughout the episode. This album, Ariel, you know, it, it comes after this 12-year break in Kate Bush's career where people thought that she, you know, was sort of done and thought that she'd become this recluse. And um, there's this sense to this album when you really study it, and it's it's weird to, like, be doing this kind of, you know, like, uh, without, like, have really spending a long time studying. It, it took me a long time to, like, come around to this album as a Kate Bush fan. It just feels like somebody who took a period where she was kind of putting music from her mind and like let it seep back into her and fi- find things to write about and ways to write about them that are just really unconventional but beautiful. It kind of gives a person hope for like the creative process in a way as this kind of like reflection of a calmer, like this calmer domestic existence and there's something about the calm and the patience of this music as well as like the kind of Kate Bush theatrics that seep into it that is like I don't know it was really beautiful to me at the at this particular moment in my life a period of transition here also out of uh yield covid you know we're we're doing this remotely but really we could be doing this in the same we haven't made that jump I mean Andy's upstate but it's fully possible that we could be yeah, maybe our maybe Soon. our season finale will be uh, the first ever in person episode of Late Era, which is crazy. Just throwing it, throwing that out there on air it, as, n- a, as a challenge to ourselves. Well, we, it'll be like um, the Friends reunion special. It'll begin yeah. with all of us looking so much older, wandering into the room like, "Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this <yeah>. is <laughs> this feels different." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you'd be the Phoebe. <laughs> all right, Sam. You'd be the Phoebe. It's my favorite character, so right. you'd be the yeah, you'd be the Phoebe. You'd be the Monica Winston. Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> I hate Monica. I'm sorry. Andy, I I think you'd be Rachel, Andy. Oh wow. It's because I'm so beautiful. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love Rachel. And the long hair. <laughs> well, thank none of us is Ross, so that's good. Ian's Ross. <clears throat> That's true, yeah. Uh, let's yeah. get the fuck back on topic right now. What? <laughs> uh, any, uh... <laughs> let's get back on topic. How's everyone doing? <laughs> <laughs> so does anyone have anything they want to talk about? Yeah. Anything at all? We've been dicking around. What's your favorite episode of Friends? <laughs> let's get right into it. <laughs> Why did we ch- want, why did we want to talk about Ariel? Ariel is another example of what I would call like a quintessential late era statement where it is just in terms of its scope, it's so ambitious and it's a kind of thing where you can imagine her being like, "What have I not done yet? I want to up my game." It's been it's a comeback album it had been over a decade since her last work. And she returned with something that feels so conceptual and so colossal and so thoughtful that you kind of have to devote yourself to it if you want to listen. And when you're an artist like Kate Bush, who's amassed such a devoted following, that's, you know, it makes sense. Um, It's also an album that I think 
is about the place she was at in her life. There's music about um, being a parent, being a mother. There's music that's kind of like a reflection on seeing your past through a different lens. There's music that feels sort of like a callback to other pieces in her catalog. She does the solo piano thing from her earlier stuff. There's a whole suite on the second half of the album that calls back to Hounds of Love. It's an album that feels really cumulative and really like, if you're going to make a late era statement, this is like probably the most ambitious and most intensive way to do it. And for that reason, it's always been an album I've been fascinated by even before I really had spent a lot of time with it. I was always like, one day I want to really study this album and get into it. And hopefully we can do a little bit of that today. I'm trying to think if there's a ca another example here, but this is really maybe the first big one where it's been like a highly anticipated comeback, out, like a late era, True. like a lot riding on it. I was just going to say, I also can't think of another album that arrived after such a long break. So she hadn't put out an album in 12 years before this, and then also is so ambitious. Like, it's pretty stunning to me that, like, I feel like if I were in her position as a musician and I hadn't been doing it for 12 years, it would be very difficult to sort of summon the kind of, like, confidence it must have taken to to make something so big, uh, so sort of uh, far-reaching in its themes, and also so structurally strange and idiosyncratic. Like, I can't think of any other albums that really occupy the same place um, in a musician's career as this kind of like long-awaited comeback that is also one of the most ambitious things they've ever done. Right. right. And I think with Kate Bush, like that attention to the structure of albums is so crucial to mm -hmm. her, to her work. Um, it's kind of like Bowie in that sense where it's like, I feel like a rite of passage for a lot of music fans is like, Hounds of Love and like getting into the second half of it after like the big singles it's kind of like Low by Bowie when it's like you get into the instrumental tracks as much as you're into the ones with vocals and I feel like for her like in the 21st century to be like what do I do now that feels like breaking new ground um, yeah I guess like Black Star is something similar conceptually but I agree that this album really is just so impressive on so many levels. This is maybe kind of like the, you know, one for them, one for youth. Like, you know, most of the artists that we... Kate Bush is probably, like, one of the... She's very popular and has a huge following in, in the UK, and lots of people know her hits. Wuthering Heights, Running Up That Hill, Hounds of Love and stuff, you know, but I, I imagine that for the people who normally listen to this podcast and for a lot of people, this this is like a more, less well-known artist than we normally do. So maybe this is like our mank or something, you know, like it's our, uh, you what? know. <laughs> Let me flesh that out a bit. David Fincher, <laughs> director known for popular <laughs> films such as Fight Club and, uh, you know, Gone Girl and The Social Network. Then he makes a movie about Citizen Kane's screenwriter, Mank. So that's kind of like the one for him. And so this is maybe our Mank. That's all I'm saying. You know, passion right. project. Now I understand. But, yeah. yeah. Which is, that's a tie-in because um, Kate Bush 
you know, she didn't she didn't like interviews, and she did uh, interview a few interviews around Ariel like reluctantly, and uh, one of them the interviewer got like a, a rare like image of her house, and uh, she has an exact replica of the rosebud sledge from Citizen Kane in her office. Wow. Did you have that connection in mind when you compared this episode to our mank or are you absolutely I actually, I actually didn't but by talking about film it's very appropriate because one of the most distinctive things about Kate Bush which ties into this aspect of always finding interesting things to write about that are like outside of herself and then finding ways to transition back into something that is very intimate and personal like all of her albums are rich with allusions to literature and film as well as like musical styles. I mean, pretty much everyone, including Ariel is just full of kind of these musical scenes and references. And in Ariel that pulls back from being that really extroverted theatrical. I mean, there are obviously moments on this album that are like that, but there are these, a lot of these songs are very slow and you're able to kind of drift off and drift in and out of interaction with these kind of piano yeah, the solo piano stuff or the kind of trip hoppy like grooves. And that is like very, very different from her previous albums, um, which were just almost impossible to ever think about drifting off to because every song is this huge new theatrical scene, usually really loud um, uh, and kind of like evocative of some myth or some, yeah, like some movie or historical figure. And this one there's strange illusions in it but you kind of drift along in this album it takes a while to actually be able to focus in on every moment of the album and process it <laughs> yeah so i got from mank to there i thought that was really remarkable actually that i appreciate the through line of that vision and yeah i thought it was good so that that's all to say that for everything we're saying uh, Ar- Ariel does encapsulate a lot of different parts of Kate Bush's musical past, but it also feels very, very new to me. There are threads of it that tie into her earliest work, but it also sets the path for what she'll go on to do after this, especially with her uh, 50 Words for Snow album in in uh, 2011. Also, what I wanted to say before I launch, launch into the next part here is uh, just that because she's not a household name, because for in this country at least, um, and not as prominent as the other artists that we've talked about. I feel like this episode I've always wanted to do kind of to make a case for Kate Bush as an artist that people should go deeper on than the singles and like kind of spend time with the kind of weirder stuff that feels a bit controversial, confrontational or like an acquired taste and like why it's rewarding. We have a challenge from last week that we need to um, follow up on before we move forward with. Yeah, I'll I'll tee this one up because I'm looking forward to hearing what we got here. Um, listeners, in the last episode, um, we hit a kind of uh, roadblock where every episode this season I've given a little piece of my expertise, which in addition to being a music lover, I'm also pretty deep in the finance game, something of an entrepreneur. And I have been sort of preparing in each episode a little bit of financial wisdom in the hopes that people tuning in can maybe secure a kind of nest egg for themselves, learn something a little bit beyond the late careers of these musicians. And uh, I was challenged by one of my co-hosts 
who was, I guess, a little unsatisfied with the information I was given. And more, like, he could, <clears throat> more like yeah. platitudes. Platitudes, I think, is probably more accurate than uh, information as a, as, a, as a term of description about what you were giving. All right. Interesting historical quotes, I thought. So the idea is we said, well, okay, well, let's put our foot where our mouth is and let Andy uh, try to do his own financial corner, which I can tell you what I did in my free time this week. I learned a lot. I used the time I would usually spend researching and going through my ledgers uh, <laughs> to see what information I can share. And I actually did come upon some really cool, useful information this week that I'm going to keep to myself. And so instead, I present you with Andy Cush and his financial corner. So I just, this, uh, just want to be golden. I just want to start by saying I'm not really familiar with the idiom "put our foot where our mouth is" in the context that you just used <laughs> yeah, it. Me. But uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe you were thinking of what you usually do when you handle the uh, financial corner, oh. which is put your foot in your mouth because your financial advice is so uh, embarrassing. Uh, so I gotta say I'm on I'm on Sam's side, but that was Sam. You gotta admit that was pretty good. Agree to disagree. I'm gonna start with a little storytelling. Uh, I guess about a week ago, I was uh, sitting at home enjoying a rare moment of sort of not much to do, uh, relaxing. When I heard from my old friend Steve, uh, Steve's a guy that I. Uh, have known since college, who is really deep in this sort of avant-garde world of new finance uh, involving cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. Mm, I've uh, heard of he's, him. <laughs> he's made his living this way. And Steve told me, hey, man, I'm in town and I'd love to see you just sort of impromptu. And uh, he came over and we sat in my backyard and his kids were running around and you know, I'm someone who's inclined to be skeptical skeptical of that sort of stuff, and Steve's very thoughtful and uh, has a healthy self-awareness about some of the more sort of unsavory actors in that space, and really just gave me some interesting perspective on it all. And uh, one of the things that we talked about uh, was something called a Decentralized, decentralized autonomous, autonomous Organization. organization. Now, what this is, is uh, a company of sorts uh, whose... Uh, Decisions are made entirely democratically that operates independently of uh, old school financial institutions. Uh, you vote on uh, the structure of the company, the uh, decisions it makes, uh, who you know might be appointed to its board, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these things are encoded on the blockchain as this sort of irrefutable ledger of uh, the transactions that the company makes and the rules that govern it. So it doesn't really have to be involved in banks uh, the way Christ. an old company might. And I think that if you're someone who uh, is adventurous with your money, uh, who isn't afraid of a little risk and who wants to really be on the vanguard of uh, what finance is about today, take a look at decentralized... Autonomous organizations, otherwise known as DAOs, and consider uh, investing some of your funds there. Is it over yet? Sorry. I, uh, yeah, I can understand that, you know, there was a lot of information there and that if you're not really of a sophisticated uh, bearing about this stuff, it might come across as, as tedious. But, you know, when you really want to dig into uh, the nuts and bolts of finance, you have to be ready for... Um, 
a lot of real detail as opposed to some kind of quasi-philosophical boot-in-mouth, head-in-the-clouds, impractical advice that's not going to do anyone any good. Uh, Well, no one fucking asked. Um, I think you did ask me last week. (laughs) I appreciate appreciate the super try-hard teacher's pet energy of that, but um, you know that Sam... He's controversial, sure. Some people, it's like cones. Some people don't know what to take away from it. It's like what? Cones. Oh, okay. B- Buddhism? Yeah. It's like, I thought, I didn't know what you said. I'm trying to compliment you. Okay. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Now I'm going to take I, it back. But Sam, no, don't, don't Sam, take it back. Sam has the personality of a guru and the elocution that you need to put, he, he could put that in, information like that across in just a couple sentences. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'll say, Andy, I appreciate your perspective. I appreciate the amount of work you seem to have put into it. Steve sounds like a cool guy. If you can share his email, that would be awesome. Uh, let's, yeah, maybe uh, you could learn a thing or two from him. Let's move on. I'll say, create a strong password <laughs> for your bank account. That's all I'm going to say. What? This <laughs> you have one. You have one. Double dueling. <laughs> Should I give my financial you, advice? <laughs> You want to have a strong password. We, we, have a fi- we, we could start a financial triangle with three different financial It's a cyber security risk if you don't have a strong <laughs> password. Have a strong password. That's all I'm going to say. Let me Let's throw my hat, on. my hat into the ring and say, sometimes you got to spend from the heart. Sometimes you got to just not think it through that much and buy that thing that you've been that you've That been doesn't eyeing. make any sense. No, do not follow that advice. Sam, so if I was trying yeah. to craft a strong password, uh, can you give me some specific tips about what constitutes a strong password? <laughs> On the longer side, a mix of lowercase and capital letters. Numbers. This is amazing. Uh, this is really a good tie-in, actually, to uh, the album, I think, because um, on this album, another one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it is its interaction with um, kind of there's a moment where she sort of evokes the modern world talks about it and the the kind of vehicle for that is reciting many many places of pi the number pi so it's just a song centered around spelling out pi which is kind of for her i think this um sisyphian uh task like some trying to get at some truth by reciting out this number that never ends I also feel like that's an interesting, like, as someone who's coming to this album for the first time, who uh, is pretty much the person that Winston described earlier, who loves Kate Bush's singles, but has never, like, gone deep into albums before this, when Ariel was raised as a potential album for the show, I guess I was kind of like, I don't know anything about this, like, what's the kind of sell me on it, so to speak, and I feel like Winston or Sam was like, well, there's a song where all of the lyrics are her just reciting, you know, 117 digits of pi. And I feel like that was the thing of like, okay, I'm on board to uh, to dig into this album. It's, yeah. it's a good indicator for sort of like the strangeness, although it's probably the highest, it's the most strange moment on the album. It's sort of like a, just a good indicator for the territory, the general territory we're in. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I actually think that's arguable, you know, like there's there's a lot of really weird moments. Is it the kind of Ren Fair, you know, there, there's a moment where she's singing bird song. There's, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition. Yeah. 
Right now, I think we should launch into just giving a basic crash course in who Kate Bush is. Um, in the late 70s and the first half of the 80s, in particular, rose to become this kind of big, like, top-selling pop star in the UK through making some really strange and very different records and on each of them kind of challenging her audience to go there with her. And when she went big, like with the Hounds of Love album and with her first album, you know, it, it's just, it's just a, like fascinating to, to look at this kind of career that is just always been based on this certain kind of artistic integrity. But from an artist who started writing songs when she was 11 and recorded some demos, her family, um, and this is, relevant to like why she is the way she is. I think her family was musical. Her father built musical instruments. They were very involved in the folk scene in Ireland or not in Ireland, but playing like Irish folk music. And uh, so her brother was musical instrument maker. Father was a pianist. Her mother was a dancer, which also makes sense because dance is such a huge part of the presentation of her music starting from her first album, uh, sort of up into the 90s, and then even later when she made a return to performing. So yeah, that sort of sets the scene for why this person writes these like unbelievable kind of ornate piano songs that are full of this like childlike wonder, but they're also full of like myths and illusions. And the record company that she presented the demos to initially didn't really, it didn't really take, but then David Gilmore from Pink Floyd heard them and sort of is responsible, like around the time of recording Wish You Were Here, so in the early 70s, um, and EMI signed her. The The first album came out uh, in, in 78, The Man With The Child In His Eyes, which is a top 10 hit. You know, she wrote that when she was like 13. The unlikely single that the record company didn't want to release, but she insisted on, was Wuthering Heights, which is one of her biggest hits, obviously. Again, deals explicitly with the book, um, super theatrical, you know, very catchy in this very odd way, very difficult chords and, and, and very difficult to sing just like in this extreme part of her voice. So with her very first statement, it was just like, who the fuck is this? Like, how, what is this? You know, now uh, we're going to go to Jude Rogers uh, talking to me a little bit about the perception of Kate Bush when she came out in Britain and, and you know, her, her level of pop stardom there. In the, in the early phase of her career. It's funny. Um, I was trying to think about the first time I heard her and I couldn't put, I couldn't put my finger on it. It was, if you're British and you're aware of pop music and you're born, I was born in the late seventies. You know, she was just always there. She was a big presence. I think because Wuthering Heights was such a massive deal over here um, and everything around Wuthering Heights, the fact that this song stood out so much in the middle of um, punk getting through to the UK charts and punk being a huge thing in the tabloid press. Suddenly there was this 18-year-old girl who was incredibly self-possessed with this song that was completely out of fashion, but got to number one within five weeks of its release, you know, which is insane. Um, and she got, she became part of you know, mass consciousness very quickly, partly because she was so, she was so weird, <laughs> but, you know, so accessible at the same time. You know, the amount of comedians in the UK who 
you know, at the time would make, you know, you know, make fun of the kind of idea of this, you know, witchy young girl, you know, kind of with a dress on in the woods or whatever. Um, um, the amount, you know, this endless kind of um, parodies of the early part of her career and that really cemented her in public consciousness. But then you have that in the late 70s. I think the way she presented herself, you know, from the off, you know, um, she was dancing and whirling and, you know, crucially doing things that 18-year-old girls or 18-year-old, you know, young women didn't usually do and weren't really allowed to do. (laughs) She came from this, you know, bohemian artistic family and, you know, it was completely natural to to her to do that. But Britain in the late 70s, you know, I can't remember, kind of, she, 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 um, Wuthering Heights was a hit the year I was born. Um, And, you know, when I think back to my childhood in Britain, you know, anybody who was a bit arty or eccentric, you know, generally wasn't allowed in. <laughs> right. um, but I think because but I we did have, we sort of had this tradition of people who are from the fringes of prog, you know, becoming big pop stars, you know, the, by the 80s or Peter Gabriel, had, you know, come and became a big recording artist. Obviously they recorded together later. Um, you know, Bowie's influence, you know, you can't, you know, get away from that, you know, a huge pop star who was, very theatrical, into mime, all this stuff that Kate got really influenced by. You know, she's so, you know, people don't talk about her as much in relation to Bowie. You know, she's a different artist in some ways, but in others, you can completely see that line of theatricality and individuality, you know, links you to that, really. But um, her visual stuff was massive. And, you know, her tour in 79, you know, became this incredibly fabled thing tour of life you know but it was on nationwide one of the big UK programs there was a documentary about her there was this fascination in her which was partly I'm sure because you know she was a very beautiful charismatic young woman um but she was completely in control from day one as well and was sort of allowed that control by the record company I think you know because she she had that sort of mentorship by Dave Gilmore from Pink Floyd who kind of helped in the early stages you know he kind of she sort of had an endorsement before she came on, but you know, so many other people have endorsements and get sucked up by the system, and she never did. But um, you know, that visual aesthetic, you know, was so massively important to her. Um, and you know, it's not all about her, you know, obvious beauty. It's about her being weird and being strange. And um, there's something very it's almost like related to English folk or English folklore um, that's linked to this. There's some great stuff about this in a really brilliant book by the writer Rob Young called Electric Eden, which talks about Kate in relation to, you know, kind of the, the folk fabric of the British Isles, which Kate's really tuned into. And she was really into, you know, Fetwalk Convention and Sandy Denny and bands like this when she was growing up. So she has, there's all these little tendrils that come out of her stuff. You know, but talking about the visual stuff, you know, she was the first person to have an in-ear mic, you know, kind of one of these little, you know, tool mics and real innovations with her, you know, her dance was so important to her as well, you know, the way she moved. Um, it's a whole, she's a whole package, it's the lyrics and the content and the intellectualism, but also the catchiness at the same time. As she kind of advanced into like 1980, Never Forever, that was uh, another number one album where she really started to use synthesizers and drum machines for the first time. Every song sort of started to feel like a different musical scene. Like there were different, there's folk styles being borrowed from contemporary classical jazz, stuff that was just totally synthetic sounding. She used this the Fairlight synthesizer or, or where she was like 
doing all the sampling, so you know she'd create this sort of cinematic sense to her songs by literally having clips from field recordings, clips from films, dialogue. She'd have actors come in and and do dialogue, which is on Ariel as well. And yeah, just you know, this I think Never Forever is really where it kind of begins. But then you know. The fascinating that that's a pretty big hit, but then the dreaming comes in 1982, and that's where it's like this is an artist who's capable of anything. I think you know it was re, it's re, it's totally self-produced. It's all this Fairlight stuff and just really experimental and, and kind of confrontational, almost post-punky, proto-industrial, not hook-oriented. So it was definitely less successful, but you know now it's considered like one of the most visionary pop albums of the 80s. Also, one of Bjork's favorite albums, which makes complete sense. It sounds totally ahead of its time. After that, there was like this kind of big angry outburst. And after that, she took a little bit of time to figure out what she wanted to do and then made Hounds of Love in 1985, which put her further along commercially than she'd ever been, broke through into the top 40 on the U.S. charts. Running Up That Hill became a top 40 single in the U.S. And, you know, that's like one of her iconic songs. And what's amazing about that record is it's so pop-oriented on the first side. You know, Hounds of Love, Running Up That Hill, Cloud Busting, there were, uh, The Big Sky, all of them felt like singles, you know. The second half is this totally insane unified suite that's based, that's inspired by Alfred Lord, Lloyd Tennyson, and it's like about, it's like a vision quest through death and rebirth and it has all these images of the sea and sailing and there's like these demonic voices and chopped up vocals and just like it's like fully proggy in a way <laughs> it's just this electroacoustic sample filled mess of things that's just like really challenging by more challenging than anything she had released so you have this number one album in the uk that is like it just has her whole range of artistry right there it feels like You know, she was the first woman to get um, a song she'd written herself to number one in the UK and to get an album right. to number one in the UK. And, you know, she was producing her own stuff as well, you know, solely after 82. So, you know, it was amazing. But, yeah, Hands of Love was massive. Um, I, It's funny, you know, you I'm working on um, a book about music and memory and all this stuff at the moment, and... I've been looking at old videos of Kate and um, I do vaguely remember um, you know, Hands of Love at the time and cloud busting. But, you know, it could have been in the early 90s when suddenly I went to my friend's houses and saw music TV and they had cable and all this kind of stuff. Right. You know, back in, back in you know, 85, you saw her on Top of the Pops once or singing at the end of a chat show right. and that was it. So, um, but yeah, Hands of Love was just everywhere on the radio. It was a massive, massive hit and... Um, I was watching earlier today her performance of that on top of the pops, the big UK weekly chart show mm -hmm. as was. She is just surrounded by a band. There's all these guys playing these weird instruments and she's there, you know, kind of looking completely in command and in control. And I remember her as a kid, her being like that, that side of Kate Bush. And, you know, she just kept branching out from there. It felt like she could really do anything. The Central World, which came in 1989, is 
maybe my current favorite album of hers um and it's a little bit less of the like mythical theatrical illusions and more kind of about some of it is there's like the first song this title track uh is inspired by ulysses but there's also this it's, it sort of feels about like the struggles of modern life and just one of the big songs on it is called deeper understanding where she's like talking about talking to a computer and and about talking about connecting through the computer which it feels like a obvious spiritual predecessor to pi so yeah i mean it's a pretty amazing career up and through 1993 which is the red shoes that's her last album before ariel that kind of has like a little bit more of a poppy quality but it's still you know inspired by the powell and pressburger film about uh these magic shoes that the ballerina can't stop dancing in which inspired black swan it's very deep conceptually even though it has like eric clapton wailing on it and like a prince guest spot and uh jeff beck and like the chords feel a little bit simpler because they were designed for like touring all these very different but totally related in her extremely unique voice albums that just she built her whole career on there was never anything but that kind of auteur statement but 1993 she backs away uh from things partially had like a bunch of losses in her life including her mother um and yeah she like canceled some of this ambitious tour that she was going to do for the red shoes and uh took a step back uh got married yeah just like settled into domestic life this is a good tie into the impression so i'm going to do that right now everyone 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 with me yeah 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 let's hear it so um hello oh hello 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 (laughs) hello sam and andy welcome to late era Yes. How are you today? A little worse now. (laughs) A little freaked out. You seem like a nice man or person to me, so I. I, Oh, I wish I was a man. Soon I shall be. If if are you Pinocchio? Mummy, uh, mummy says that I uh, have a lot of of potential and talent, and. It is really a topping day here in Kent, and I am enjoying uh, being out in the sunshine, running in the fields, and I think I'll pick some daffodils and bring them in to mum. And I love to sing. Pissing? I love to sing uh, songs... (laughs) In the old styles, and I love to sing with me, my mummy around the piano, and I am a child of a, a person that is... Um, a child of a person who are loves you, his mommy. Are you Bertie? That's right, I am Albert yeah. uh, Macintosh, a.k.a. Bertie, Kate Bush's son, uh, who she gives birth to in 1998 and who factors prominently on this album. There's a song called Birdie, uh, which is one of the, it's a, both a touching and funny moment on the record, I think. Um, but uh, he, bef- let me say this. Um, that was really good, right? Great, yeah. Great job. Thank yeah, you. Virtuosic. Um, something that our group therapy instructor said is that we should verbalize more when we're proud of each other. And I'm proud of you for that one, Winston. You got through it. We got who it was. 
And I, you had some props. You put on that little fedora during one part, and you bounced uh, yes. right back into the episode. I thought it was really excellent. I had a tam shanter and a fedora, and I opted for the fedora. So I'm glad you liked when that. you were, when you were when you were pantomiming, kicking the daffodils, and sort of picking up the petals and blowing them towards the camera. I yeah. thought that was really touching. The snapping my suspenders. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. That was great. I think probably I think we could agree that that was uh, the maybe the best impression yet. There have been some rough patches, and you know we've given you criticism when criticism is deserved. But I think today that was a really special moment. Thank you. You nailed it. I wanted to do a tender impression to match the tender tone of this album um, and her, you know, her love and excitement about the the kind of reflective domestic life that she kind of was inhabiting during this time and like dirt and you know she she really wanted to she's very vocal about saying that she wanted to really commit herself to being there as much as possible in the early years of his life and that was like a huge she was very transparent about that being being one of the main reasons that she stepped back and not because she was trying to be reclusive or some like total like uh hatred of the music industry and commercialism although i think there was a lot of fatigue that really it really was just like how could i not be there for this well i'll say this i love the song bertie so maybe we should start there let's uh let's put it on Those are such quintessential Kate Bush chords there. Yeah. I just hear that kind of progression and I immediately think of her voice. said about it. it's a wonderful thing having such a lovely son you know with a song like that you could never be special enough from my point of view so i wanted to try and give it an arrangement that wasn't terribly obvious so i went for sort of early music thing so it's this kind of with her it's always this i feel like it all it all is this fluid thing where she's so interested in all these folk styles and experimental music styles and pop and she kind of thinks about her subject and she decides like what kind of language she wants to pull from musically how to set the scene with literally like the style of it as well as kind of like, okay, am I going to, you know, is this going to be a synthesizer? Is this going to be, you know, what, what kind of literal weird textures can I bring to the table to shape this world is kind of my, my dream, like mythical version of these different musical styles. And uh, it's funny here because it's not like some, mythical story like she has a song about Joan of Arc that comes shortly after this on the album Um, and she's not using this kind of early music style for that but she's connecting it sort of obliquely to kind of this celebratory elemental feeling about her son which she's putting across like very very directly in the song and there is something kind of Um, beautiful about that that comparison sort of reminds me of 
a few of my favorite uh, pieces of music criticism that you've written, Winston. I know you're sort of out of the game now, uh, but you know pieces you've written about like. Uh, Steely Dan's The Royal Scam and also uh, Joni Mitchell's The Hissing of Summer Lawns. I feel like that's a, a quality of music that you are very finely attuned to, the way that sort of settings can create like a sense of, of place that is related to like the subject matter or spirit of the song. And I think it also shines in the music that you make as well. So it's interesting to hear you talking about it with regards to Kate Bush. Uh, thank you. <laughs> It, yeah. I did think about the, the the royal scam thing a little bit with Kate Bush and why and my, the basic argument about that album is that there's like these kind of musical grot- little like grotesque scenes where the the music more than on other Steely Dan albums doesn't feel so smooth it feels like a little aggressive it feels a little twisted to talk to fit the characters and I think that why a lot of people don't love there are a lot of people who don't find Kate Bush's music obnoxious and difficult. And I think part of it is the way that she completely unrelentingly gives into these kinds of scenes and commits herself, the music on every level to backing that up in the way, in a very kind of cinematic, theatrical, operatic way. And uh, that to me, more than her voice is the operatic element actually. And this album, like all of her albums is full of them, but it's, it's a little, it's this kind of more peaceful, measured, quiet, version of that it felt very pastoral and very almost ambient (laughs) at times yeah it came out i'd been working at a magazine music magazine called word for three years or so at this point and um this was a big event you know yeah kate bush and amma you know she was one of our big artists it was very exciting um I remember at the time I was um, living in a crazy shared house with my boyfriend and some other friends. And, um, you know, I, and I'd be bringing CDs home all the time, which they were very excited about. And I remember bringing it home and I'd just play it in the kitchen. And one of my best friends lived there too. And kind of, whenever I think of that CD, I think of just people being in that kitchen and suddenly sort of calmed by it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and my friend Michael wandering in going, She's singing about a washing machine. What's going on? Um, <laughs> and, you know, there's all these kind of, you know, she's, she hasn't changed some of the weirdness. You know, there's a song, you know, she recites pint Hi, right. in some places. And, you know, there's, you know, uh, Mrs. Bartolozzi's lyrics are quite, could be seen as quite absurd and quite silly in other hands. Um, but um, I'd always been a bit, I'd always been really impressed by Kate Bush and slightly intimidated. You know, I thought she was, she was a really interesting artist. Um, and there were some songs because I really loved, like I loved Hands of Love and I loved Cloud Busting. Um, and yeah, I loved the whole Hands of Love record. But there was also something about her that felt a bit moved because you know, she was such a genius. Um, and here you felt like she was opening, not even opening a door to a beautiful garden, but you were going through the back of the wardrobe with her, you know, into Narnia or something. It was this kind of pastoral wonderland. But also in the first track, her son was on it. And that was such a big thing. Right. I really remember thinking at the time, you know, this is the most private woman you can imagine. But, you know, to have your seven-year-old on that record, you know, that's, you know, it didn't feel like suddenly, oh God, she's lost her mind and she's kind of, you know, bringing her personal life into this. It just felt like, you know, this is my art and this is my life now. And she'd been moved by that experience of parenthood. And when she's been interviewed, you know, in the rare occasions when she's been interviewed, she 
has talked about, you know, the feeling of being overwhelmed by that sense of love. And, you know, there was a comfort and a tenderness in that, you know, not that parenthood, you know, I'm a parent now myself, and it's not that it's blissful and wonderful and without shit, because it's got a lot of shit in it, <laughs> literally and figuratively. But um, there's this kind of her having been through that experience had added all these extra dimensions to what she wanted to do with her art. And that's how it seemed different. What other, what other songs did we like on this? Um, the one in the first half, which I feel like it maybe makes sense to stick with the first half of the album for a minute before we move into the second half, which is um, such a different thing. Uh, I was really struck by the song Miss, Mrs. Bartolozzi or Mrs. Bartolozzi. It's hard to say how to pronounce it because she never actually says that name yeah. in the song, I think, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting to me. Um, this is a song that sort of starts with a scene of a woman doing laundry and sort of very gradually, so gradually you hardly even notice it. It drifts toward her kind of daydreaming about like the the water of the laundry actually as the ocean and the tides kind of like rubbing up against her legs and the fish and she sees this sort of ghost of a family member and, and the song, similarly to what Winston was just saying, like, it proceeds in this kind of daydream-like way that feels very um, similar to the sort of what she's doing with the lyrics where you're starting in this scene of groundedness and kind of drifting off into some kind of maybe unreality. It's also interesting to me that she chose to like title it after this kind of fictional character, Mrs. Bartolozzi, that she kind of cooked up when you could listen to it and think it was just sort of this like straightforwardly impressionistic take on like her own domestic life. But it seemed, reading some quotes from her about it, it seemed like she was, the fact that this was a fictional narrative was somehow important to her and titling the song after this fictional character was a way of kind of like expressing that fictional distance, which I found very interesting. Yeah, it, it, Mrs. Martellozzi always makes me think of like Mrs. Dalloway because I think, or Virginia Woolf, because it's like this reverie inspired by doing this the house, this banal household task, um, just like this whole train of thought. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it, again, like it ties into this thing about the sea which is part of the hounds of love thing it's a choral room is a similar track on the on the first side which also has is also like a ruminant ruminative solo piano and voice thing but which is does track fully kind of into the personal for her dealing with uh, the loss of her memories of her mother but it's a similar kind of hallucinatory um vision of like this underwater city that she and there's this little room in this underwater city with her mother holding this little brown jug and singing to it and um and like laugh and you hear her singing to it and then uh she imagines it breaking and it's it's the same thing of like this dreamlike logic not spiraling out in some like weird surreal way but just really like you know and in, in this hypnotic piano world just kind of like unraveling and broadening out like very very beautiful 
and deceptively difficult to do, you know, to write these kind of words and create this kind yeah. of feeling for music that feels really simple. That is some, something I really admire about Kate Bush as a songwriter is her ability to take really simple images or ideas like writing about doing laundry or um, in Strange Phenomena where she sings about like menstruating and making it this kind of thing where it feels mystical. Like I feel like mysticism and mythology is something that is so connected to Kate Bush as a songwriter. But if you actually listen to the things at the heart of her songs, there are these really kind of quotidian scenes that a lot of songwriters ignore. You know, like, it's probably the only song I know about, like, doing the laundry and washing it and watching it as it washes or um, even, like, running up that hill. Like, the idea of, like, climbing a hill becoming something so intense and symbolic. Like, there really is that element to her work that I think is overlooked in favor of the more fantastical stuff associated with her. Yeah, and I think that... That's what I was saying about the sensual world. I feel like that's an album where it kind of really comes into focus. That kind of sets the tone for the rest of her career to me, where the mythical and the personal and the smallness of some of these things that she focuses her songs on become more kind of palpable and 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 yeah, like as, as poetic generally and subjective as these lyrics in these songs feel like on Ariel. It's like the whole thing kind of gets stretched out time-wise, patience-wise, just like, and, and, and it, it feels like representative of the way that she just let this thing happen, this <laughs> music happen over a long period of time where she had prioritized learning to live life in a different way and pay attention to different kinds of things and create, you know, the songs feel like that. Uh, I think a little bit about Paul Buchanan's midair, Sam, <laughs> like mm. the, with these songs, it's like sim simple feeling uh, piano songs about quiet moments, um, just on a very different scale. Yeah, for sure. We're gonna be dancing uh, what else? Like, obviously, it's not all like this. The first song, for instance, is about is was a was a kind of uh, minor hit. Um, the album did well, by the way. Uh, this this song, uh, it was about Elvis, <laughs> so you know, there's still some of the uh, the old Kate Bush stuff going on here. King of the Mountain. Um, yeah, this was it's a funny that um, it's funny that Kate Bush and Scott Walker wrote songs about Elvis right around the same time, and both of them were so kind of like I don't know uh, impressionistic. Like yeah. it just seems like a funny source of inspiration at this point. This vocal like sort of approach that she's taking in these lines though does almost feel like a sort of an Elvis homage in a way something about oh, the sort of like swagger of the way she's articulating the words yeah no which, way like, I didn't know I didn't know this was a song about Elvis previously but it's interesting to hear it in that context yeah definitely no way that that is that is accidental yeah. yeah. Um, Musically, it also reminds me a little of the Peter Gabriel album from around this time called Up from 2002. That was like kind of like delving into quasi Nine Inch Nails stuff. Oh, yeah. that's but, That album is insane. Yeah, that's a great album. It's really long. Um, 
but yeah it's a similar take on like futuristic art pop type thing seems to be in a similar wavelength to this one so um maybe we move on to side b which is called a sky of honey um and it is an uninterrupted uh 42 minute piece of intended sort of as a 42 minute suite of music this is a long album by the way this is like 72 minutes or something um and yeah this obviously calls back to the idea behind the second side of hounds of love and um but this is whereas that's about the sea this is more about the sky (laughs) this is more about sun um but there is this kind of idea of of the power of nature in a certain way. There's a lot going on in it. I I don't know how to sum it up. I think it's supposed to take place in a 24-hour period. It at periods has the this languorous feeling where like not much it's like a day passing without that much happening and you're just kind of sitting there there's like home activities there's this character of the painter who is painting who literally there's a voice of the painter. Um, there's uh, just a lot of moments where it's like listening to the birds or she's singing with the birds or there's samples of the birds and then there's a lot of stuff just about the movements of the sky Um, and a lot of musical things get moved through on this Um, also worth noting she performed it in its entirety on her last tour that she did Right. it was the whole second half of the show I believe which uh, a big part of her her tour uh, was Birdie. Albert himself, um, I believe, performed the painter's part. Birdie's always game, always helping out. <laughs> always helping out. <laughs> Birdie's Birdie's all over the place. He's on. Seems he's like a, a fucking goat. He's on. <laughs> he's so fucking. Give it up goat, for dude. Birdie. Give it up for Grady. And also, while you're doing that, take a second to say thank you, Birdie. Birdie's as well. a savage. <laughs> He's a consummate good boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got to talk to Jude a little bit about her experience seeing the uh, Kate's comeback shows in 2014, where she performed uh, the second side of Ariel and uh, with Birdie on hand. So let's take a listen to that. It says a lot that when she came back and did that residency in Hammersmith, that the second side of Ariel was um, Sky of Honey was one of the set pieces. Right, and Birdie the was... Ninth Wave, and, you know, and, and then that, the end. And it was, yeah, it was it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I reviewed it for Pitchfork. Right, as, great review. You know, you know, I was asked to do it when I was a new mum, I had a four-month-old baby. I got this email, and I'd, I'd managed to get a ticket for one of the gigs later in run by being a punter like anybody else, you know, on the, on the computer at 9 a.m., uh, yeah. refreshing a page. Right. I'd managed to get four tickets for later in the run. But I went to that first night, and I wasn't in a brilliant way. I have to say, you know, I was a bit exhausted. I was I had, you know, a bit of contact. I'd been going through quite full-on postnatal depression, but I was like, I've got to go and do this. I've got to go and do this. So to put this person in, who's going through this stuff into that environment and, you know, she starts the gig and then King of the Mountain off Ariel is this point where they've done like six or seven songs. It's just like a normal gig. And then at the end of that, 
the end of the song goes completely crazy and there's this the drummer comes to the front of the stage whirling this rope and everything goes black and suddenly the ninth wave happens so Ariel is this transition moment into this set piece that you can you know you never imagine happening yes yeah, because you've had this normal gig to then and then the second half of it you get you know Ariel in full well no you get um you know the second half kind of the, the whole day, you know, the day of um, that experience from the bird song to Nocturne and, you know, and the dawn again, um, the dusk, so dawn to dusk, you know, while you, you know, it's, it was, it was so incredible. You thought, oh, God, the, the level of detail that was put in here. You know, I went on the first night and it wasn't perfect and Ariel isn't a perfect record. Right. But the, conceptually, what she's trying to do with a lot of it, I just think it's so... It's still, it's fine, I still find it really thrilling and really moving what she's trying to do with it. And um, and I remember watching it that night. There's so much about it's about you know this child get there's this child on stage getting lost and there's all this kind of abstract imagery and oh it was just incredible. It was incredible. What do, we, what do we like on this second half here? Um, I'll say just like in general, uh, not any about any specific song, but to me, like some of the most powerful stuff on the second half and also about the album as a whole are is the way that it incorporates um, birdsong and tries to approach birdsong on like musical terms, mm-hmm. you know, like the idea of sort of like a peaceful album that opens with recordings of birds is like sort of, uh, doesn't seem very remarkable on the surface. It's been done a lot. They're sort of like, they could be this sort of like empty signifier of like nature and serenity, but then very soon, uh, there's like a little piano figure that sort of, rhythmically echoes what this morning dove call is doing. Um, And then Kate Bush starts singing along to it. And later in the album, there's some sort of bird song that gets put in call and response with this sort of like hysterical laughter that she's doing. And you can hear the kind of musical, like the, the shape of the line that is the bird that the bird's doing. She's sort of riffing on it in the way that she's laughing. And it sort of reminds me of, uh, Olivier Messian, whose name I probably just uh, butchered in terms of the French pronunciation of it, but this amazing um, 20th century composer who really tried to approach birdsong for its sort of concrete musical qualities and was like writing lines that were meant to kind of echo this the songs of particular birds. And as a result, his music sounds like nothing really by any other composer you've ever heard. And this stuff on Ariel um, reminded me a lot of that. Uh, And like, there's this sort of like, both from a musical perspective, because it just sounds amazing and, and totally original, but also from this sort of philosophical perspective of like, you know, birds are making this incredibly complicated, beautiful music and to sort of approach it with that level of respect and try to listen to what they're actually doing as sort of musicians is really um, cool to me. It's neat to hear this kind of rich counterpoint that just feels very much like here's an I- here's something I heard sitting in my backyard and here's like the sound one by one. Here are like sounds that relate to it 
in my brain and I'm going to string these along. And then it feels like the, the whole suite is kind of like connected between ideas of that, like some moment of sitting in the living room, sitting in the backyard, sitting, looking at a sunset. And then there's just all sorts of, you know, then it's shaped. They're like these kind of joyous, like dance sections, some of which are like kind of funny, like sunset. There's like the set, the part that kind of sounds like rusted root or something but like, <laughs> <laughs> like this really strummy, uh, uh, you know, it's that, it's that bordering on like that kind of theatrical kitsch, which I feel like alienates some people, but like, it's, it's hard to not love it, you know, in the context of this whole thing. Yeah. This, this thing. Uh, I think the guitar tone has the tone of that acoustic guitar has a lot to do with the rusted root vibe. Totally. It's all, you know, it's also this constant interest she's had in like kind of folky folk music-y stuff. It's just on, on this particular album coming out at this time, you kind of feel that like new agey like there's more of this new agey trip hoppy thing, the pro- like the production on this record, it kind of brings it to maybe a cornier place than it is when she's like using bagpipes and stuff on the sensual world where it's kind of framed in an aesthetic that we can think is a bit cooler. Yeah, I think stuff like that is part of why this album maybe doesn't have the reputation that something like The Sensual World or Hounds of Love does. Like, I do think it's one of her greatest albums, but I feel like it rarely comes up in conversations of, like, her masterpieces. And I I would guess that part of that one is our proximity to it. Like, it's more recent. Yeah. But I also think part of it is um, maybe, like, the impenetrability of its structure and the moments that feel like uh uncharacteristically straightforward for her like that one part yeah where i think a lot of you know like the the myth of hounds of love is like the use of the fair light and the technology and the image Mm -hmm. of her with like this crazy new synth she was programming and i think with this album she sort of stripped herself of that need to be at the forefront of like the technology that was happening at the time there are glimpses of it, glimpses of it like king of the mountain but for the most part it's a pretty intimate pretty organic sounding record which actually works in its favor for me yeah can you play like um either maybe like uh what's it called how to become invisible the, yeah. the, there is this quality it's like in a way the way the reason it took a long time for me to come around to is this kind of like, yeah, counterintuitive, like it's, it's the opposite in some ways of listening to another Kate Bush album. It's like, you really have to not drift off. Like when you hear a groove like this or like these longer drawn out things that don't, they don't feel at all like the kind of complete overload of like an 80s Kate Bush album it's like the opposite you like kind of drift off but then you like come back to when you when you spend time with it and you listen into the words like this out this these words are so beautiful to me too just about like like getting lost in a mirror kind of thing it's like there's like this incantation it's like the witches and Macbeth in the in the in the chorus I don't know yeah it takes merit it takes like kind of approaching it with the mentality that I think Kate Bush had when she made it of just like being patient, paying attention. Yeah. That, I think that's part of it too. People 
not everyone wanted to be as patient with her. And it was definitely interesting to get Jude's perspective on sort of the reaction to Ariel from critics in the UK and elsewhere. And uh, just hear a little bit more about, about what it, the record meant to her then and, and what it has meant to her over time. You know, at the time, I remember the reviews at the time drove me nuts because you had lots of, you know, male critics. And they were male. Right. Um, you know, music criticism, thankfully, has changed a lot mm. in the last 15 years. But, you know, the monthlies in the UK is all guys, hardly any women. Um, and, you know, I was looking at some of the reviews earlier on, and it was like, you know, oh, she, the, the, on King of the Mountain, there was a drawing by Bertie on the cover of the record, and she got such crap for it. It's like, you know, oh, no, maybe she's, you know, I've, 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 I've literally got a line here because I was so annoyed by it. Kate Bush's decision to put a drawing by her seven-year-old son on the cover of a comeback single seemed an ominous portent. Did this mean the erstwhile siren of Bexley Heath, very British music writer, was now planning to express her creativity primarily through her motherhood? Oof. One, why, why not? Why can't you do that? Actually, it'll be quite interesting. Um, but also as, as if nothing about that experience could be of any worth creatively, culturally, whatever. You know, it's not an album just about parenthood. It has that, you know, it's filtered maybe through that experience and there's elements of that experience come in. You still have her, you still have her playing with personas, with right. characters, with ideas. Um, and you do have, you know, on on the, the suite and the second side, you know, the bit where Bertie talks about the birds, which is, it's not just about I've had a kid and here I ha- I'm having him form. It's kind of like just seeing the world anew through the innocence of a little child, just looking at birds. And it's funny listening to it before doing this today. You know, it made me think of there's like a lot of eight, early 80s music um, that's sort of in that pastoral. Um, I've got a playlist I've made on Spotify called Sounds of Lost Summers. You know, this kind of British folklore <laughs> stuff. So it's like Virginia Astley, um, mm-hmm. this kind of. Very old, rarefied British village nature kind of. It's the sound of you know singing in churches or kind of um, Vaughan Williams, the lark, the lark ascending, uh-huh, yeah. you know, classical music stuff like that. But it's it's got elements of that in it, but it's got more than that in it. You've still got Kate and her sense. You've still got you know Kate writing songs about Joan of Arc, right? You know you've got and Elvis. all these things still in the mix, and Elvis, of course. Yeah, you know, she's got all these, you know, all the pop culture references, you know, are still going on. But, you know, there's, you obviously she's getting older and the song was like, you know, A Coral Room is probably one of my favourite Kate Bush songs. Mm. It's just the bit where she's talking about the woman and the mother and the brown jug. And that is meant to be her mum, apparently. And it's just, it's just so moving. And and as I said, I was in my late 20s when it came out. I'm in my 40s now and... You know, every time I hear that song now, it means more to me as I get a bit older and see my family getting older and think of myself as a mother and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's sort of music for the ages, really. It's music to grow up with. feel like her cult with like like hipper listeners right at the time Ariel coming coming out was coming about more because I remember getting into Kate Bush through the future heads covering Hounds of Love right but I feel like there was this rise in appreciation 
at around that time for her. I'm not saying it's just through that song, but it felt like she seeped into the cultural consciousness of younger people anew around that time. And so by the time yeah. 50 Words for Snow came out, people were like ready for it to be like, to follow her wherever she was going to go. Right. I think, yeah, I think that that kind of um, resurgence in like listeners, younger listeners in the U.S., I think happened a little bit after this album. Right. And yeah. And I think some of like the acclaim, I think 50 Words for Snow is really good, but I think some of the acclaim that album got should have been like Ariel should have gotten, you know, like I think that, um, I prefer Ariel to 50 Words of Snow, but I think they're both good. I've never had my like deep, deep moment with that, with 50 Words for Snow that I have with this yeah. record. Um, and I think maybe I'll get there someday, but there's a lot of birdie on that. He sings on that. Yeah, sure does. And so does Elton John. So that's a whole other, that's a whole other universe. I just let you walk away. I've never forgiven myself. I saw you on the steps in Paris. This is our final section of the show known as Fantasy or Delusion, where we make a binary judgment of every album that we talk about uh, based on the title of Billy Joel's classical piano solo album, uh, Fantasies and Delusions. So basically, if we want to render a judgment that we like an album, we call it a fantasy. And if we want to say that it sucks, we call it a delusion, and there is no in-between. Uh, would one of you guys like to go first? Yeah, I'll kick it off. Uh, Fantasy, for me, I think it's one of her best albums. Um, I, I really admire the album, and I find it really inspiring. It's, um, it's music that's so specifically a product of having taken time away and of getting older and observing changes in your life and death and birth um it's music so specifically about womanhood and motherhood it's music that communicates a kind of contentment and understanding without resorting to anything that feels empty it's it finds meaning in so many different ways i love the bird song i love the thematic links between the songs the vision of it um and I also, when I think of it, I think of the importance to her, it seems to have in her songbook with her performing the whole second half live. Um, she titled her book of lyrics after How to Be Invisible. Um, it just feels like there's albums where it's like most artists have, you know, like their masterpieces where for her it's probably like Hounds of Love, you know, and then they have albums that feel like a personal breakthrough or like what I'd call like a Rosetta Stone in understanding their song book and for me this is that type of album for her and yeah i just feel like it's a really crucial statement for you know one of the best to ever do it so total fantasy yeah i'll weigh in as the sort of uh relative uh not newcomer but someone who hasn't uh, explored kate bush uh, as deeply as my two co-hosts have and say, I think it's a fantasy also. And I don't think that, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, kind of some of the more esoteric or uh, kind of compositionally bold aspects of the album. But and that might kind of come across as intimidating if you're not already like a deep Kate Bush head. But I'm here to say that as someone who 
enjoys her music, but in a way that hasn't involved a lot of like deep sitting with like entire albums that there are, this album is also like pretty appealing on a surface level or in an immediate way to me that like, if you're thinking that you don't have enough Kate Bush knowledge to sort of enjoy this, I would say that it is just enjoyable and a deep experience just if you're coming to it sort of for the first time. And another thing that I just want to highlight is like, you know, the the themes that we have talked about with this album, like kind of calm and patience and stillness and contentness and domesticity, like it would be very easy if where you are in life is to sort of embrace those things. Like it would be very easy to sort of slip into not making an album about them at all and just sort of being still and being calm and being with your family and, and letting that be the sort of boundaries of your life. And the sort of flip side of the coin of this album is it's this insanely ambitious thing that probably took a lot of hard work and uh, like persistence and stress and stuff to make. So I think like making art that's about calmness is really difficult because the impulse towards calmness in a way is an impulse away from making art. Uh, So the idea that she was able to sort of hold the kind of thematic material of the patience and the calmness in her head at the same time as the probably crazy amounts of work and difficulty that it must have taken to make an album like this is just really impressive to me. Um, And uh, I am just inspired by it. Yeah. And that's echoes certainly how, what I was saying, trying to say at the beginning, I mean, it, it, it it really hit me hard um, coming back to it for, for that reason doing what so many people cannot do <laughs> like make make something about what i think a lot of artists really think of as nothing it's like what do i have to say right now um totally and uh it's a really beautiful thing for a later artist to do well and to come back with something like she did that is so it's so surprising that she's doing this too next to her the kind of like big strokes and the 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 like kind of la- the loudness and the brashness I think of 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 the last album that she made and and that I think a lot of people associate with her work and I just want to say quickly it's not a boring you know it's not all the piano ballad stuff it there's lots of big celebratory strange musical moments on this that make it um, a dynamic listen so I think if you're not particularly attracted to just that side of things you're going to find something to like here too um, and I'm glad that it hit you. As a as as a powerful thing without having all that context, Andy, which is reassuring to me for you know listeners maybe being able to come in here. But you know, it also you can do Central World, Hounds of Love, The Dreaming. You can really start anywhere. So big fantasy for me, obviously. All right, well, I think that's been our show, folks. It was a fun one. A lot of fucking around, but a lot of good talking about great music too. That's what it's all about. What's That's up? what we call podcasting at its best. I feel like you say that a lot now. You say stuff proselytizing about podcasting. That's because to me, podcast is the it's the future. I am just going to say it. it. I think it's really I exciting. I like how you pod, podcast, podcast doesn't require a <laughs> article of any kind. It's just sort of like faith or truth. Or yeah, it's just podcast. The first thing I did in my new home after I set up my podcast <laughs> corner was just this sign I painted that says, 
uh, Eat, Pray podcast. Yeah. That's beautiful. This is a podcasty so. kind of album in certain ways. Mm. I'll leave you guys with that thought. What's up next, Sam? Next week is Frank Stallone's Let Me Be Frank With You. <laughs> uh, that's going to be hell. Can't wait to dig into it. Yeah, it's that raw. one's a real album that actually exists, <laughs> like the others I've said this season. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to Jude Rogers for giving her insights as well. Good night. Goodbye. There is a heat wave coming soon. Don't you know what you have to do? When hot coffee just woke up the cheese.
Sweet era 20 is the code tonight. Late Era is hosted and produced by Winston Cook-Wilson, Andy Cush, and Sam Sadomsky. It is edited by Winston Cook-Wilson and mixed and mastered by Ian Wayne. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brinkman and RJB. Logo designed by Lisby Art and Design. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media.